when I heard the co- collective gasp and awe at the announcement of the Curly's baby, I thought, well, I better have something good today. <laughs> and I think Acts 2 will suffice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit-inspired word. We are about to hear and seek to understand words that were carried along by your Spirit and your apostles and those you chose to give us your word. And we pray that you will help us to hear it, not only with our ears, but with our souls and our minds and our hearts, and that we might trust and believe and obey. And you know us, God. You know where we come from this week and what we are struggling with, what brings us low and what tempts us. And we pray that you would use the word today to help us, convict us of sin, encourage us in righteousness for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not difficult to convince someone that there is a spiritual aspect to reality. But what role does the spirit or the spiritual play in the Christian faith? Christians believe what the Bible teaches, that the spirit of God dwells in them. There is no such thing as true Christian faith as truly trusting in Jesus and truly being a Christian that does not include the experience and the belief that God's own Spirit dwells in His people. And this fact about the faith has led to much confusion, disappointment, excitement, and even sadly at times division among Christians. It is so central to our faith, yet it is sometimes found very difficult to understand. As we go through the book of Acts, we come now to the moment that Jesus promised would come. Jesus died for the sins of the people in the world. He rose from the dead to justify that payment. Then He ascended where He now sits at the right hand of the Father, and He promised His disciples before He left that the Holy Spirit would come and empower them. We come now to that moment when the Spirit arrives and fills the followers of Jesus Christ. Today my hope is to help you understand what this passage means in a biblical theological manner, that is, in regards to the story of all Scripture, and what it means for us to today. The arrival of the Holy Spirit, I think, to many is like finding a piece of a puzzle that doesn't have a cover. It's a beautiful piece. It's a colorful piece of the puzzle. It's exciting. It's bright. But do you really know how it fits into the whole puzzle? Do you know where it goes? Some people might take this piece of the puzzle, the Holy Spirit, and say, this piece really is Christianity. This really is the thing. This is what it's all about. And make the Holy Spirit the emphasis of all of their faith and practice in a disproportionate way to Scripture. Others may on purpose or by neglect, take this piece and just ignore it altogether. 
not want to worry too much about it, not want to give it too much attention. Back in week one, when we began the book of Acts, we said this, Acts corrects various errors about the church. Acts corrects those who are walking in spiritless religion and those who think spirit-filled experience is religion. If you think being the church is just showing up to a few meetings, you will find the Spirit of God is more free, more powerful, more miraculous than you know. If you think being a part of the church is about wild, aimless, personal, euphoric experiences, Acts will bring you back to the purpose that has more to do with Jesus and the mission of God all over the earth. Acts redirects lifeless religion, avoids experientialism, and encourages the church to be bold witnesses of Jesus Christ to all nations throughout every generation. We're going to continue to see that in Acts today. We're going to have the opportunity by looking at Acts to judge our church, to judge ourselves, our thinking, and our practices in response to the Holy Spirit, so that by God's word, we might do our church purpose. We might, by the help of the Spirit, joyfully build up the body of Christ for the glory of God by making maturing disciples. Today we're to answer essentially this question that comes from the text itself. The things that Megan just read, the arrival of the Spirit, what does it mean? What do these things mean? Now to answer that, we're going to slow down and look exactly at what happened. First we're going to look at what happened And then we're going to give three meanings from the text. There are more. There is a lot more that this passage means in the Bible than we will get to today. But three things that it means for us. First, let's look at what happened. Let's just slow down and make sure we read the report carefully and understand what it's saying. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now these events happened on a particular day, and we're going to address that later. It helps us understand the meaning of this passage. This most definitely includes the 12 apostles, and it likely includes that whole 120 believers who were gathering together in the last chapter. As they were together, verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now, what exactly came and from where? It was a sound, not a sight first, a sound and from where? It came from heaven. It came from up. A sound like a mighty wind. sounded like a tornado might be the best description you could give. A mighty rushing wind. Look what it does in verse 2. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. It was all-encompassing. The sound was so big and so thick that they were in it. It was all-encompassing. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. In verse 3, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. This is something that they saw with their eyes. That's what that word appeared means. They heard a sound like wind, and then they see something, and the best way to describe it is as fire. Now, this is a bit beyond our words because they are from beyond our world. The best way to describe it is as fire. The origin of this fire is heaven, and the spiritual here is intermingling with the physical. 
What kind of experience was this? Was fire visible in their mouths? You know, like when you take your flashlight, you turn it on, and you stick it in your mouth, and their mouths were glowing. Some translations say that the fire came down and set on their heads. Or maybe their mouths were open. It looked like there was a furnace inside. Was it little tongues floating in the air? The, words for, the word for tongues here is glossa, from which we get our word glossary. So did they perhaps see languages in front of them scrolling like teleprompters on fire? Probably not. Luke, carried by the Holy Spirit in writing, gives us what he thinks we need to know. This is something best described as tongues as of fire. Best I can tell, the category of physiological phenomenon that we should put this in is like when Moses saw the burning bush in the wilderness, where it was said, Behold, the bush that Moses came across and saw was burning and was not consumed. It was burning as fire, yet somehow did not burn them. And this fire was distributed, literally dissected among them. It seemed to have appeared as one fire and dispersed before their eyes to each of them. Pick up in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When it says they began to speak in tongues, what does it mean? As we just said, the Greek word for tongues is glossa. It's the word from which we get glossary. Now, it can mean tongue, in the, as in the, the tongue in your mouth, and it's used this way in the New Testament. But it can also mean a language, like here in Acts 2. This tongue is a language we are speaking. We see it from the use of the word, and we see it from the effect in the passages just following. So what happens next in verses 5 through 13? It's the outworking of those events in verses 1 through 4, that, that first half, 1 through 4, is not the event. It's the, the means of what's going to happen in verses 5 through 13. It, the point of the sound is not to make a sound. The point of the fire is not to have a fire. The, the point of the speaking isn't just to do something miraculous. Something happens because those things happen. Look in chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Notice how this is written. Luke says, now, as in there just so happened to be devout men from every nation in Jerusalem. It was God's providential timing. It wasn't an accident. It was like it just so happened at this time. Verse 6, and at this sound, the multitude came together. This is how everyone from all of those nations were assembled. They heard the sound all over Jerusalem. Just like Texas cities had tornado sirens sounding through our cities this week and everyone came out on the front porch, because that's what we do, we hear the sirens and it's, we're supposed to go find a closet and a bathtub, but we go to the front porch and look to see if, we, if it's in our front yard. The sound sirens, if you will, through Jerusalem, people from all nations who are gathered there hear it and they come to where that sound was. So it was loud enough, and it was long enough, and it was directional enough that it drew people to it, even just out of curiosity. Look what it says, continuing in verse 6, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? You have the list of languages and nations. Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretan and Arabians. You hear it for the third time. We hear them telling in our own tongues. They show up to where the sound was, and all of a sudden, they hear people who don't know Arabian speaking in Arabian. I mean, this is the equivalent of showing up to Crockett, Texas, and going, I hear people speaking Chinese. I hear people speaking Arabic. This, is, this doesn't make any sense. Followers of Christ who don't speak Phrygian speaking Phrygian. This includes both Jews and proselytes, people who are not Jews by descent but began practicing Judaism. Let me just say this as simple as I can. Here's a question. What is tongues when it is introduced into the New Testament? What is tongues? It's heaven's empowerment of Jesus' apostles to give witness of him in foreign languages. That's what tongues is. What is tongues? Heaven's empowerment of Jesus' apostles to give witness of Him in foreign languages. That's by the Spirit of God, of course. What are they saying in other languages? What are they saying? What do do they have to say? Verse 11. They say, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They're telling the mighty works of God in our languages. The mighty works of God being told to the nations through tongues is the goal, not tongues. The goal is not to experience tongues. The apostles and disciples were not pursuing tongues. Tongues is a sovereignly given, spirit-empowered means to tell the mighty works of God to people who would not otherwise be able to understand what they were saying. And what all was included in this message, it was centralized around the person, the life and the work of Jesus. That's what they've been waiting for. This is what Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for. Jesus promised that His Spirit would come and would empower them to be His witnesses. And in the meantime, they got Matthias. And so now they have a a whole twelve again commissioned to be people who testify from every nation to every nation of all they've seen and all they heard and all they touched Because remember, they needed someone like them in Matthias who who had been with Jesus from the beginning and seen it all and heard it all and touched Him and heard Him. That's what you had to have to be an authoritative apostolic witness of Jesus, one of the twelve. You had to be there and see everything that Jesus did. So it's safe to assume that they have been telling them what they saw and heard. They're witnessing, they're fulfilling their apostolic ministry by telling people what they saw, what they heard, that they might have been telling them about Jesus feeding the 5,000. They might have been telling them about Jesus bringing back a little girl from the dead. They might have been telling them about Lazarus, about the transfiguration, about the man who was lame but could, could walk again. And about the things that Jesus said. And they most certainly were telling the mighty works of God in Jesus dying on the cross, going into the grave, and the mighty work of raising Jesus from the dead. These are the mighty works of God in Christ. These are the works 
that they were emboldened by the Spirit. They were commissioned as apostles to tell. And now they're boldly telling everything they had seen. They were with Jesus in the beginning, and the Spirit now is empowering them to be heard in native languages. What was their response in verse 12? And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? What do all these things you're telling us, what do they mean? We're hearing in our own language, they're saying all these things about Jesus. What does this mean? These events are so incredible, they need an explanation. We'll see in weeks to come that Peter explains, number one, the miracle of tongues. Why are they speaking in tongues and how? And two, Peter's going to explain, this is in the weeks to come, what it means in the Old Testament that Jesus rose from the dead. He's going to explain it. But today I want us to consider what these objects and these events mean. Why wind? Why fire? Why coming down from heaven? Why tongues and languages all gathered together at the same time. Why did the Spirit come like this and do these things? Three things that it means. Three things that it means. First, it means this is God. The events that happen here, the wind, the fire, the tongues, they don't happen in a vacuum. They're not all historical. They happened in history, and they are connected with past events. Think about it this way. Imagine that I went to fill the streets of Manila, Philippines, let's say, with blue stars that were lined in silver, just painted blue stars with silver everywhere. You probably have a lot of residents coming out in the morning and Manila, Philippines, going, what in the world is going on? What do all these stars mean? What does, this, what does blue mean? What does silver mean? Why are they painted everywhere? But if I were to go to downtown Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the home of the Philadelphia Eagles, and paint blue stars with silver lining all over, I've dreamed about such a moment, Blue stars with silver lining all over Philadelphia. You would have the residents of Philadelphia coming out saying, those Cowboys fans have been here. They would know exactly what that means. Likewise, in the Bible, these events here function sort of like calling cards. The wind and the fire through biblical history are connected to the presence of God. They associated with the presence of God. When God came down and met Moses on Mount Sinai, it says, after Egypt, after they're let out, and God comes to meet His people at Mount Sinai, it says Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Exodus 19. Later it says, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. In Exodus 24. And at the end of Exodus, when the tabernacle is built by Moses, that place of worship that was going to follow Israel through the desert, that, that transportable place of worship, 
The very last words in the book of Exodus were this, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Likewise, when the temple was built, that permanent structure in Jerusalem dedicated by King Solomon, it was filled with the glory of the Lord as His dwelling place. So 1 Kings chapter 8 says this, When the priests came out of the holy place, having put all the ornaments in place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. When Daniel, when Ezekiel and the prophets see visions of God, there is fire associated with his throne. You can see that in Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7 as examples. So when we see the the wind come down from heaven and fire come down from heaven, it's not the first time that we've seen these things coupled together with an inaugurative work of God. It resembles God's presence on Mount Sinai and in the tabernacle and in the temple. The arrival of the Holy Spirit is not just an experience with a, a spiritual kind of thing. It's not a ghost-like experience with a nameless, personless spirit. It means God is here. Wherever God's spirit is, God is. This is what the spirit of God means to the people of God. It means God. The sovereign creator over everything. And the Holy Spirit is not like a spirit, like we, like we think of spirits in the walls of haunted houses or, or a feeling that can't be named or understood. The, the Holy Spirit does not reach His fullest potential when we're given goosebumps. The Holy Spirit is, is not boiled down to a, a little spiritual nudge every now and then when we're driving too fast or see a homeless person. It is the Spirit of God Himself. Is there a grasp in your heart and in your mind as to what it means to have the Spirit of God? God who made the world and showed up in fire and smoke on Mount Sinai and caused the people to fear and tremble to the point of telling Moses, please don't let him talk to us. We will die. The God who when Isaiah sees him says, Woe is me! I'm unclean like a dead man. The Spirit of God is God. And the Spirit arriving with this wind and the fire doing these things is pointing to the fact this is not just a spiritual essence in the air, but that God is present. God, who is ready with wrath. God, who is also patient in love. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, do you recognize and give weight that it is God? If you deny and quench the Holy Spirit, do you understand that you deny and you rebel and you say no To God, the wind, the fire, the power, 
This is the Spirit of God. The second thing that this means is that God dwells in His people for His worship. God dwells in His people for His worship. When the Spirit of God The Spirit of God comes, He dwells in His people, and this is the meaning of the coming of the Spirit, and it is a fulfillment of the new covenant, that God's Spirit now dwells in His people. When the Spirit of God descended on the day of Pentecost, it did not descend onto the mountain like with Moses. It did not descend into the temple, although it was still standing. That temple will be destroyed just a few years later in 70 A.D., God was not without a temple. Rather, the Spirit of God rushed into the people and filled them. What does Luke record? Like the tabernacle and the temple were filled. Luke says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So through the New Testament, Paul has the gall to say things to the church that is to Christians like this. He he tells the church, Romans 8 and 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple? Christians, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own. Ephesians 2.22, in Him you also, both Jews and Gentiles, in Christ you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's people being built together As one, all nations together as they come to believe in Jesus Christ are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And Paul urges Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.14 says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. Paul commands the church to live in holiness because the church is now functioning as the temple of God. Did you hear Paul's question to the church at Corinth? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Point being, you ought to be holy. Now, does this mean that the whole throne of God Himself, the throne of God that's in heaven and in the cherubim and the fire and the emerald lake, that it's all down and it's all come down inside you? No. That's That's not what we're saying. But it doesn't mean that God's dwelling place on the earth is no longer stones and walls. It's no longer inside the Holy of Holies. The center of worship is now His people all over the world. And just like it was a tragedy for Israel to prop up idol worship in the temple and paint pictures of foreign gods in the temple, so it is a gross sin against God to line your heart and your mind with sin. Let me just ask you this morning, what kinds of evil are in your heart today? toward your government, toward your neighbor, toward your church, toward a pastor, toward your family, toward a coworker, toward a boss, toward a spouse, toward a child, toward those who have persecuted you, those who have hurt you, toward people who have let you down. Or what have you propped up? What have you propped up in your heart? What have you set up on the shelf of your heart? The thing that you love the most. 
the thing that when people touch it, you get really angry. When it gets threatened to be taken away, you get sad. Just imagine everything in your heart that you love, that you treasure, that you work for, that you protect. Just imagine if it was all painted on all these walls right now. Would it add to the worship of God? Christians, you are the worship center. This is what it means to be a Christian. We are forgiven of our sin by trusting that Jesus died for our sin, that He rose again to be justified as a payment for our sin. Then the Spirit of God fills the church, the people of God. If the Spirit of God does not dwell in you, then you're not a Christian. If the Spirit of God does dwell in you, then it is fitting that there ought to be no sin in you. Like when God came down to Sinai and filled the temple, establishing those places as holy. Pentecost is that inauguration of the church as God's dwelling place. God came by the Spirit and filled them. Implication, our lives are worship centers. Everywhere you see a Christian in whom the Spirit of God dwells, you see a worship center. But even if you're, you're not a Christian, you're, you're a worship center too. We're all worshipers. All of our wants, all of our desires, all of our affections in our hearts, it's all worship. Even if it's just our own lives, and our own safety, and our own health, if it's our job, or if it's our retirement account, or if it's someone's affection, or if it's how we look on Facebook. Whatever we love, whatever we worship, that's our God. That's, that's the God in our, in our worship center. In his book, We Become What We Worship, D.A. Carson recalls Martin Luther's definition of idolatry. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Faith from the heart alone makes both God and idols. To be a Christian means to enjoy forgiveness from God for worshiping things in the world rather than Him. And that's in our hearts. And once we've come to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, and the Spirit of God dwells in us, we become that place of worship for God on the earth. So, so Paul teaches the church in the New Testament things like this. This is temple language. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, after explaining that we are saved by Jesus alone, Paul charges the church in temple language. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of a God that he just spent 11 chapters explaining, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Likewise, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, again, after explaining the gospel and giving some instruction about general Christian living, he explains in temple terms, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God as you would bring to the temple. You make your life the offering of worship and thanks that Jesus' blood was spilled for you in the forgiveness of your sins. And when the Holy Spirit comes and fills His people, we become places of worship, the place that God dwells on the earth. And that worship by the church begins here in Acts as the Spirit fills the church and it continues today as we worship God with our lives. 
The third thing it means is that it's harvest time. It's harvest time for the church. There's a providential timing which may have snuck by us. On what day did the Spirit of God descend onto the followers of Jesus Christ? It's there in Acts 2 verse 1, that first verse. When the day of Pentecost arrived. If you're like me, you you might read through that at first and go, well, what in the heck is that? Life in Jerusalem and in Judaism was organized by a rhythm of festivals and holy days. In each of those festivals and and holy days, retold how God saved His people from Egypt. Generation after generation worshipped God by remembering and passing on the memory of God's salvation and His mighty hand and His love for His people and bringing them out from under Pharaoh's slavery. And all of those festivals, you can go read them this afternoon, it might help you. Leviticus chapter 23, Moses instructs the people of God to keep all seven of those festivals. They're all listed there together. And three of those festivals included Israel, Jews, taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And just as these festivals in Jerusalem look backwards at saving God's people, God saving His people from Egypt, they also pointed forward to God saving His new covenant people through Jesus. So the Passover, for example, it recalls the Passover festival and feast, recalls when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, and recalls that God brought death to the Egyptians but saved his people. He instructed his people to, to paint the, the blood of a lamb over the doorpost. And then when the angel of death came through Egypt to kill Egyptians, those, the, the firstborn, that is, of Egypt, those with the blood over their doorpost of a lamb, they would be saved. Well, the Passover time of year, wouldn't you know that's exact the time that Jesus died on the cross? He celebrated the Passover with his disciples on his way to the cross where he would shed his blood as a lamb for sin. That's how God forgives our sin. He forgives us from the eternal death that we deserve because we're like his enemies in our sin, but Jesus' blood over our hearts is forgiveness and salvation. And the day after Passover is the feast of what's called unleavened bread. And this recalls the Jews eating unleavened bread as they left Egypt in a hurry Jesus, having been born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, was himself like unleavened bread. Leaven came to be known as an illustration for sin spiritually. Jesus, of course, was without sin as an offering. The day after that Sabbath is called the day of the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits. It recalled Israel receiving their harvest for the very first time in the new land. Why is that day special? Well, that's the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. He is himself the first fruits of the whole new creation. Not just on land here, as food we eat in our stomachs, the first fruits of the new creation, of heaven itself that we're looking forward to. So we have Passover, unleavened bread, the feast of first fruits, and then 50 days later, you have the feast of weeks, or called Pentecost. We're referring to the 50. Pentecost was an agricultural festival. It reminded God's people of His abundant provision for them. It marked the last spring festival and the entrance into summertime. 
and it signified the time of harvest in the land of Israel. So what does it mean that the Holy Spirit arrives on the day of Pentecost? Well, for one, it was the holy day. The holy day in which one of the three in which all Jews were charged to travel to Jerusalem and pay offerings in the temple. They were ordered to travel there on that holiday. So that is providentially how all those Jews and proselytes from all of those different countries were there. Were there in proximity to hear the sound of the Spirit and hear the preaching of the gospel. But although they were there for the Feast of Pentecost, they did not realize that they were there to be the harvest of heaven. What is being brought into toward the Spirit and toward the presence of God on this Pentecost festival? What is being brought in? Not just grain and first fruits. People, people brought in to where the presence of God has come. The Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost signifies that in God's plan of redemption, it's harvest time. This is the last spring festival and the first summer festival. It's summertime. It's time for the, for the intaking. And if you look at the end of this chapter, after Peter explains all these gathered from all the nations, what happens? Peter speaks up, explains the meaning of the Spirit and the meaning of Jesus. It says at the end of chapter 2 and verse 41, they received Peter's word and they were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And a few verses later it says in 2.47 that they were added to their number day by day those who were being saved. By the time you get to chapter 4, verse 4, the number of men, just the men who believed, had come to about 5,000. And in chapter 5, verse 4, it says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. A great many people were added to the Lord. And on so the harvest continues today. Through the Spirit-empowered preaching of the Lamb slain on Passover and risen on the Feast of Firstfruits, God is now bringing in the souls from Israel and all nations. Here's what this means for us, church. It's harvest time. We need to know that it's summer in God's plan of redemption. Christ the Lamb was slain, we've celebrated Passover, Jesus has risen on the first fruits, and now is the time that the harvest is coming in. Celebrate the harvest. Love, 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 seeing souls saved from their sins. Love, love, Love the preaching and the proclamation of the mighty works of God to every tribe, nation, and language, and tongue. Give your money to it. Talk about it. Tell about it. Pray for it. Long for it. Love it. Because the harvest is a reason for God's people to rejoice. Here is what Moses tells the people of God in Deuteronomy 16. 
That second giving of laws, the people are on the way. They've already heard Leviticus. They're on the way into the promised land. Moses is giving them the law again. He says, then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord. Walking through feast by feast. You shall keep the feast of weeks, that is Pentecost, to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord blesses you. And here's what Moses tells them. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there. Rejoice! And if Israel can be called and charged to rejoice over some bundles of wheat, ought we not rejoice over men? And women and children and souls brought in by the Spirit-empowered preaching of the Lamb slain for them. The harvest is a time of rejoicing, praising God for all that He's doing. Listen, there, there are those who have misunderstood Pentecost in so many ways. And I've still got some questions myself, I think. Entire branches of the faith, many of them true Christians, want to recreate Pentecost. They want to recreate tongues, recreate the experiences of the wind and the fire. But listen, we don't re-inaugurate the president every year. He's just inaugurated. Likewise, we don't re-inaugurate the church. The Spirit of God dwells in the church and empowers the church to preach the gospel And Pentecost, the time of harvest, continues. Likewise, there may be some here today who think and feel like all that stuff in in Acts, it's all past tense. You know, those miraculous, amazing things happen, and that's over. Well, yes, but just like Israel did not recreate Mount Sinai, they did not recreate the filling of the tabernacle, they did not recreate God filling the temple. We don't recreate the moment of Pentecost and the inauguration of the Spirit dwelling in the church, but worship continues there. Because God continues to dwell there until He fulfills that whole covenant. The Spirit of God Himself, who is God, dwells in His people as a worship center, and through the Spirit-empowered proclamation of Jesus, God is enjoying the harvest of souls. That's what started at Pentecost. One author put it this way. If you're trusting and believing in Jesus, you heard about Easter because of what started at Pentecost. Might someone else hear about Jesus this week from your mouth because of what started at Pentecost? If you want to recreate Pentecost... Follow the Spirit's leading to tell someone about the Passover lamb who was crucified for sin and raised as the first fruits of all new things. Kevin DeYoung puts the, the puzzle together like this. See how the Spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel fits together in the greater picture. Jesus came to call His disciples as fishers of men, go out and get men. Mark 1.17. And he called them to preach. Mark 1.38. To call sinners. 
Mark 2.17. And he came, Jesus, to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45. The focus of Jesus' ministry is on teaching. The heart of this teaching centers on who he is. And the good news of who he is culminates in where he went to the cross. The mission of Jesus is not service broadly conceived. There's a lot of backstory in that sentence. The mission of Jesus is not service broadly conceived, but the proclamation of the gospel through teaching, the corroboration of the gospel through signs and wonders like Acts 2, and the accomplishment of the gospel in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel proclaimed, corroborated through signs and wonders, about the accomplishment. Jesus paid for our sins and rose from the dead that we might be forgiven and live with God too. Everything Jesus did and commissioned the church to do culminates in this. You will be my witnesses. And the Spirit means now is the time of harvest, Pentecost. Proclaim to someone, to someone the mighty works of God in the death and the resurrection of Jesus for sins. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to come sit under your word, read and taught and sung. And as we pray, we begin, God, you know our hearts. You know what idols we've protected, what worship we've enjoyed that is not centered on you. Would you help us, by your Spirit, tear those down, make plans, hate sin, and in return, turn from idols to serve the living God. We thank you for the wonderful treasure that is your Spirit dwelling in the church that it's you who are here, that it's your spirit that dwells, and that it is you who are using and empowering the church to be your witnesses for all nations. Would you help us live like that this week? Would you empower us to do that by your spirit? Would you give us humility to confess our sin and enjoy the power of the spirit to be witnesses? Father, we'd just take a moment and think about people that we know. Names that maybe we haven't prayed for in a while. Maybe souls that have been on our hearts and our minds. We pray for them. We pray for them. Family members, we pray for them. Co-workers, we pray for them. Neighbors, we pray for them. Children, we pray for them. The harvest that you have, Father, help us labor to bring it in. We pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.